Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. I will be reading Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3 from the World English Bible. Now in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chabar, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. In the fifth of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, Yahweh's word came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar, and Yahweh's hand was there on him. I looked, and behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with flashing lightning and a brightness around it, and out of the middle of it, as it were, glowing metal, out of the middle of the fire. Out of its center came the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Everyone had four faces, and each one of them had four wings. Their feet were straight feet. The sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. They had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. The four of them had their faces and their wings like this. Their wings were joined to one another. They didn't turn when they went. Each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they had the face of a man. The four of them had the face of a lion on the right side. The four of them had the face of an ox on the left side. The four of them also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Two wings of each one touched another, and two covered their bodies. Each one went straight forward. Where the spirit was to go, they went. They didn't turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches. The fire went up and down among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and lightning went out of the fire. The living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I saw the living creatures, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, for each of the four faces of it. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like a barrel. The four of them had one likeness. Their appearance and their work was, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in their four directions. They didn't turn when they went. As for their rims, they were high and dreadful, and the four of them had their rims full of eyes all around. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. When the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit was to go, they went. The Spirit was to go there. The wheels were lifted up beside them, for the Spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. When those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up beside them, for the Spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. Over the head of the living creature there was the likeness of an expanse, like an awesome crystal to look out, stretched out over their heads above. 
Under the expanse, their wings were straight, one toward the other. Each one had two which covered on this side, and each one had two which covered their bodies on that side. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a noise of tumult like the noise of an army. When they stood, they let down their wings. There was a voice above the expanse that was over their heads. When they stood, they let down their wings. Above the expanse that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness as the appearance of a man on it above. I saw, as it were, glowing metal, as the appearance of fire within it all around, from the appearance of his waist and upward, and from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. As the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of Yahweh's glory. When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one that spoke. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. The Spirit entered into me when he spoke to me, and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me. He said to me, Son of man, I send you to the children of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even to this very day. The children are impudent and stiff-hearted. I am sending you to them, and you shall tell them, This is what the Lord Yahweh says. They, whether they will hear or whether they will refuse, for they are a rebellious house, Yet they will know that there has been a prophet among them. You, son of man, don't be afraid of them. Neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions. Don't be afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they will hear or whether they will refuse, for they are most rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I tell you. Don't be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat that which I give you. When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. He spread it before me. It was written within and without, and lamentations, mourning, and woe were written in it. He said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, cause your belly to eat, and fill your bowels with this scroll that I give you. Then I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. He said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of a strange speech and of a hard language, whose words you can't understand. Surely, if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, for they will not listen to me, for all the house of Israel are obstinate and hard-hearted. 
Behold, I have made your face hard against their faces, and your forehead hard against their foreheads. I have made your forehead as a diamond, harder than flint. Don't be afraid of them, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive in your heart and hear with your ears all my words that I speak to you. Go to them of the captivity, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, This is what the Lord Yahweh says, whether they will hear or whether they will refuse. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great rushing, saying, Blessed be Yahweh's glory from his place. I heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the noise of the wheels beside them, even the noise of a great rushing. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, and Yahweh's hand was strong on me. Then I came to them of the captivity at Tel Aviv, that lived by the river Chabar, and to where they lived, and I sat there, overwhelmed among them seven days. At the end of seven days, Yahweh's word came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word from my mouth, and warn them from me. When I tell the wicked, you will surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that wicked man will die in his iniquity. But I will require his blood at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he doesn't turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he will die. Because you have not given him warning, he will die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered but I will require his blood at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous not sin, and he does not sin, he will surely live, because he took warning, and you have delivered your soul. Yahweh's hand was there on me, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the plain, and I will talk with you there. Then I arose and went out into the plain, and behold, Yahweh's glory stood there, like the glory which I saw by the river Chabar. Then I fell on my face. Then the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. He spoke with me and said to me, Go shut yourself inside your house. But you, son of man, behold, they will put ropes on you and will bind you with them, and you will not go out among them. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth, that you will be mute and will not be able to correct them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall tell them, This is what the Lord Yahweh says. He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. That is the end of chapters 1 through 3. One very useful thing to recognize is the timeline or the history markers that Ezekiel gives us in his introduction. Admittedly, the 30th year doesn't appear to be attached to anything in particular. There are several suggestions that I read about from it being how old Ezekiel is based on the age that the priests were when they came into service, which is based on numbers 423 and 430. 
but also that it was the 30th years, it was 30 years since Josiah found the book of the law in 2 Kings 22.1. But since it doesn't reference directly either of those, it's not clear that that's what Ezekiel himself is referencing. Another suggestion is that he is simply stating the date, and that seems to make the most sense to me. It would be kind of like us saying it is January 1st, 2024. The basis for this is that when Nebuchadnezzar's father began to reign, they started counting years from the beginning of his reign. That became the Chaldean calendar at that point. And since Ezekiel and the people he was talking to would have been going by things in that culture as far as dating to some degree, that maybe he's referring to that. But when I looked at the Floyd Nolan Jones timelines, which I have come to respect quite a bit, I couldn't clearly see that that lined up. It was very close. So that still is in the running. You can look up some details of that in the Fawcett and Brown commentary on the blueletterbible.org. And Matthew Henry also references this idea. But a couple of things are very clear in this introduction. One, that he is by the river Chabar, and this is in Babylonia. However, the exact location, as in current times, like where would we go to see it now, is not totally agreed on. The Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, I guess I left off Jameson the first time I said it, um, says that this river flows into the Euphrates near Carchemish, about 200 miles north of Babylon. So that's their perspective or suggestion for that. From here, Ezekiel pinpoints the year of when he is speaking with what is going on in Jerusalem and Israel, specifying that it is the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. I know I go back and forth sometimes about how much to pronounce that J, so forgive me if I vary some in that, but you can read about Jehoiachin's notoriously short three-month reign in 2 Kings 24.8, and this is the same king that Jeremiah prophesied a famous curse about in Jeremiah 22.30, which is another of those places that might seem to be a contradiction if you don't read it carefully. The gist of it is, and you can look it up for the exact wording, is that God has Jeremiah prophesy that this king will be written as childless, not that he would be childless, but childless, but that he would not have any descendants on the throne. Or it says none of his descendants would be on the throne. So it doesn't say he won't have descendants. Now, also on, on the idea of timelines, if we compare this to, to Daniel 1 1, Ezekiel 1 1 is about 12 years later, and you can see the Floyd Nolan Jones timeline for a visual of this. In verse 3, there's a Hebrew word that is translated expressly. I read a, a more thorough definition of the Hebrew, and apparently this is trying to convey the certainty of what happened to Ezekiel. Somewhere when I was looking things up, I saw the claim that the basic phrase or version of the hand of the Lord or the hand of Yahweh was or came or fell on me, this Ezekiel speaking, occurs seven times in Ezekiel's writings. So I did a word search on the blueletterbible.org, and indeed I found exactly seven times. So counting Ezekiel 1.3, there is Ezekiel 3.14, 3.22, 8-1, and 37-1, and 41. So that's just kind of curious. The phrase does 
permeate the prophecies, and it emphasizes that none of this was just Ezekiel's mind or imaginations. So the first thing Ezekiel sees is this stormy wind from coming out from the north, and it, it is accompanied by a great cloud and lightning, which of course immediately remind us of the manifestations of God's presence with the people of Israel, uh, particularly as they left Egypt and went through the wilderness. And by the end of verse 4, Ezekiel is talking about the middle of the fire. From here, the descriptions get difficult because we are well beyond our earthly experience. I can recall two other such visions recorded in the Bible. That's in Isaiah 6 and Revelations 4, where John has his um, experience in heaven. And these are, as far as I can tell, the most detailed and overwhelming accounts that we have. But there are other mentions of heaven being seen to one degree or another. Now, I'm distinguishing between when angelic beings come to earth. So in one sense, you might say that's a glimpse of heaven because it's not totally earthly. It's from the heavenly realm. But what I'm talking about here is actually seeing heaven and one of them is Mark 1.10, where Jesus is baptized. Another is where Elisha and his servant see the fiery chariots in 2 Kings 6, verses 15 through 17. And then when Stephen is being martyred, he says that he sees the, the heavens open. That's Acts 7, verses 55 through 56. Paul probably saw heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4. It talks about that. In Genesis 28, 12, we have the account of Jacob dreaming of the ladder where the angels are ascending and descending into heaven. Um, one not commonly referenced one is in 2 Chronicles 18, 18, Micaiah says he saw the throne of God. And then in Daniel 7, 9, it talks about the throne. Now here in Ezekiel 1, 5, he describes living creatures, which seems to be a very generic way of saying these things are alive, and he doesn't have a common category for them. One of the a couple of the commentaries I read in mentioned how, in a couple of translations, these wrongly got translated as beasts. That that really isn't what is trying to be conveyed here. And then in Ezekiel ten fifteen, it talks about them again and gives the description of cherubim. As we've discussed previously, cherubim is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that it is. Hebrew sounds that are approximated as best they can into the English language, so it's not a translation. Now, these cherubim are distinct from what are, at, are described as angels and sometimes named elsewhere in the Bible, bringing messages to people. And again, I refer you to Don Stewart's methodical biblical study of the unseen realm on his website, educatingourworld.com. But by the way of quick review, the first mention of cherubim is Genesis 3.24, where they are guarding the way to the tree of life. Cherubim are integral to the design of the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. So at least at that time, they knew or were told enough about what these cherubim looked like to fulfill these instructions. And you can see references to them throughout Exodus, 1 Kings chapter 6-8, through 8, and also in 2 Chronicles 3-5. through 5. It was from between the two cherubim on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that Yahweh spoke to Moses. 
and it is a common part of descriptions of God's throne. See places like 2 Samuel 6.2, 2 Kings 19.15, Psalm 81 and 99.1, and Isaiah 37.16. Cherubim are mentioned repeatedly in Ezekiel, including when we get to the new temple carvings, and cherubim are mentioned in passing, it seems, in Hebrews 9.5. Now, here are a few other observations that came up in our discussion during our time of Christian fellowship. One thing that someone mentioned was the common depiction of Satan having hooves, which is in line with his him having been the anointed cherub per Ezekiel 28.14. Another person commented that the four faces described are commonly recognized as the strongest of their respective groups, the man, the lion, the eagle, and the ox. And the various parts of the cherubim go with these faces. But also, we should remember that typically earth is a shadow of heavenly things, not the other way around. So these specific descriptors give us insight into heaven and are not distortions of earthly creatures. As for comparing descriptions in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Revelation, the three main places that I know of where we have this kind of heavenly vision, I have yet to make a chart, but I see at least a couple of legitimate possibilities to account for the differences we see. One, each description is accurate, and but from a different perspective, much like the gospel accounts. Um, for instance, one of the gospels talks about one angel and one of two, but they're not exclusive. They just don't mention the second one. So, for example, John in Revelation mentions four different faces one on each creature, and as David Gusick's, that is apparently what John saw. He didn't see them turn. There is the wording of four wings in Ezekiel, and that may be referring to specific placement, but it could also be that in these visions, they are describing similar but different beings. If you think about earthly creatures, you know some are very similar in some ways, but distinct in others. For this view, Consider the so-called seraphim of Isaiah 6, which seem to be above the temple, where God's throne is, so above the throne, while in Ezekiel, they are below the throne, they're below the crystal firmament, and in Revelation, they are around the throne. Either way, for my part, I find it safest and wisest to assume there is something I don't understand yet when God's word is already, has already been verified as trustworthy, both prophetically and philosophically. So now, just going back to the Ezekiel narrative, Ezekiel emphasizes in the likeness as he does the hard work of trying to describe what is beyond our earthly realm. These living beings reflect the glory of the God whose presence they are in. That's so much brightness. And it makes me wonder just how bright Moses's face got. And then, of course, in verse 15, we get the famous wheel within a wheel and the phrases like, as for their rims, they were high and dreadful, and the four of them had their rims full of eyes all around, leave us grasping to imagine in our minds to conjure up a picture of what is written. But notice that while we aren't used to creatures with such wheels as part of their bodies, Ezekiel goes on to make it clear that these are part of the creatures. It is much like trying to explain feet and legs to a fish, or a very smart fish, and saying, their spirit was in their legs by way of emphasizing the physical connection, the animation, the volition of function. 
Then in verse 22, we move to the crystal-like expanse with the likeness of a throne above it. I get the definite impression that our sinful, decaying world is like living in a gray, foggy, dusk light versus the heavens with, with their multicolored brightness, but we probably need our new bodies to safely and fully appreciate it. In verse 26, we are again told of the likeness of a man on the throne. It's kind of the opposite of us being created in the image of God. We may not currently fully comprehend how that works, but we get a glimpse by this comparison. And all the glowing metal and rainbows, it makes all the movie special effects pale in comparison. And then the rainbow makes me think that the promise that began with the flood is more than just pretty lights, but it was a glimpse of heaven brought down to earth for us. Then when verse 26 ends, we have the whole point that Yahweh's glory is awesome. So Ezekiel does a face plant in recognition of his place before him. But then in chapter 2, we get the example that God raises Ezekiel up. Well, first he tells Ezekiel that he can or should get up, but then he helps him. And the nature of the mission unfolds. God begins by preparing Ezekiel for disappointing responses, to say the least. But regardless, Ezekiel must still give the message. Israel, the people of Israel as a whole, have refused, have chosen not to listen to Yahweh, but he keeps giving them opportunity. And then we have the scroll. In chapter 3, this is one of those curious passages where it is happening, but it is the acting out of meaning. So Ezekiel did taste the scroll, but this taste, though real, is metaphorical as well. The message is sweet, even if it is refused by the people of Israel that he will go to. I remembered that um, John in Revelation also ate a scroll. That's Revelation 10, 9 through 10. But his stomach turned bitter when he ate his sweet-tasting scroll. Here it doesn't mention Ezekiel having stomach discomfort, but he will have plenty of discomfort as he goes about illustrating various prophecies according to God's directions later. Then in verses 4 through 9 of chapter 3, Ezekiel is again told his message won't be popular, to say the least, that the people haven't listened to God, to Yahweh. They won't have any trouble understanding, for it's a common language between them, but they will not listen. This reminds me of a great book that I'm listening to by Frank Turk. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It has a lot of good information and discussion, but one claim he makes about God communicating with it, us didn't set quite right with me. He tries to make a case that God doesn't show himself to us undeniably because we would be compelled and have no choice but to follow him. But I think the biblical record describes otherwise, both by example and by teaching. For example, Adam and Eve walked directly with God and yet rebelled, just to begin with. Noah's son Ham saw the flood and yet rebelled. The children of Israel had God's presence, yet rebelled. Also, when God was closer to them, they begged him to go farther away. Solomon has incredible visions and talked with God, yet sinned horribly. And then in Romans 1, it says that what can be known about God and his attributes is clearly seen, and people suppress the truth. So Yahweh has employed all manner of approaches, and people still reject knowing him. In fact, when you get to descriptions of 
Jesus reigning on the throne of David for the thousand years, and then he lets Satan loose, then Satan deceives the nations and they rebel again. So it is not the lack of God's presence or revealing himself. It's pretty much that too too many people want to try to be their own God. Unfortunately, that won't work in reality, and their pride and rebellion make them susceptible to delusions of grandeur. So in verses 12 through 15, Ezekiel has seen amazing things and been encouraged, but there is turmoil in his spirit because of all of this. Then the text says that he came to them in the captivity again. It doesn't say anyone noticed he was gone, but Ezekiel apparently experienced some sort of going and coming back. And his response to all of this is similar to Daniel's in Daniel 8.27. In verse 16, Yahweh reminds Ezekiel again of his responsibility toward the people of Israel because God has given him a job to do. Ironically, it is the same role that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, was supposed to have for the nations, to be a godly people, giving Yahweh's message of hope to the world. But the people of Israel didn't, and now Ezekiel is telling them the same thing. The whole back and forth about warnings is sobering, particularly verse 20, which reminds us that committing one iniquity makes us guilty. But the watchman doesn't condemn, he warns. The phrase, quote, but you have delivered your soul, unquote, is not completely clear to me. I think it at least implies that the watchman himself commits iniquity if he doesn't say what he should and has been told to say. Also, the phrase, quote, and I lay a stumbling block before him, unquote, could be a little confusing. Now compare it to the book of James, where he says clearly God does not tempt anyone. However, God does allow tests. I mean, he allowed Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness. And we can also keep in mind 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it says he provides a way of escape. Now next, Ezekiel is directed to go out into the plain. Here, he succinctly says he saw the same glory and fell on his face again. But God sets him on his feet again. I guess God didn't want Ezekiel to think the first vision was a fluke. At least this is a verification. Then Ezekiel gets something described to him, which basically sounds like house arrest while bound with ropes. Yet he will speak when God deems it the right time, emphasizing again that the people of Israel can choose to listen or not. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey.